Welcome to Glamorous Trash. On this podcast, we recap and discuss celebrity memoirs, we pontificate about pop culture, and sometimes, if it's a real doozy, we cry. If you have ever casually referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. I'm your host, Chelsea DeVantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. And today's episode is a real doozy. We're discussing two memoirs today, the memoir of Joan Crawford and the memoir from her daughter discussing Joan Crawford. Now, if you're not familiar with Joan Crawford, she was a huge film star in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. My favorite of hers is the film Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which stars her and Betty Davis. And then there is also a a Ryan Murphy series called Feud about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis's feud when they were filming this. She also starred in Mildred Pierce. She was in the film Johnny Guitar, Grand Hotel, The Women. Uh, So, so, so many films. She's a huge star. And her autobiography was published in 1962. Plus, I accidentally read a third book, Joan Crawford's lifestyle book. I thought it was her memoir. Hoo boy! Um, It really was just a book telling you about how to stop eating and hook a man. So we read those two books and we're comparing that today with a memoir that's actually gonna be the one we're gonna focus on, which is titled Mommy Dearest. You probably remember that memoir title because it was made into a very famous film. And that memoir was written in 1978 by Joan Crawford's daughter, Christina Crawford. This is a trigger warning for the episode, which will include child abuse and sexual abuse and a lot of really tough issues. Today, we are bringing you an episode examining both of those books, but really the book Mommy Dearest. And we're going to tell this story from a totally different lens than it is normally looked at. We're really going to center Christina's story rather than Joan's because Joan Crawford adopted Christina and her three other children. So this was a huge deal because Joan Crawford was a single mom. She married, but didn't have like this long-standing marriage. It was a really big deal for a single woman to adopt. She was a celebrity. There was a lot of press around her posing with these children and a lot of media about her being the perfect mother with the perfect home and, and things like that. And so Her children being adopted is this huge storyline, and we're going to talk about the role adoption played in this storyline, and we're actually going to talk a lot about adoption and the fertility industry, and so if you want to skip straight to Joan and Christina's story, probably skip 15 minutes, but my guest and I are going to talk about uh, the adoption world up top. So get ready. This episode was so, um, I was going to say fun, but it was, it was really, really fun to talk about. There's a lot inside this episode. So let's dive in. Did she ever express regret to you over the way she treated you as a child? No, she never did. It was as though did it didn't happen. you ever discuss happen. it? Would you ever I say, tried. mom, why? I tried. I tried. And she said the past is the past. Let it go. What were the, what was the Hollywood reaction to your story? Oh, it was as varied as Hollywood itself. Um, People some, get mad? some people got mad. Some people said that it was not true. Other people defended me. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, other people said, well, I wouldn't sit down to dinner with her. But that's the way life is. Did you, know? you ever feel there's a part of me here that's doing a tell-all? That, that phrase was coined after the book. 
So that was never my intention. The one thing that surprised me... You mean tell-all resulted from your book? Yes. The term tell-all. Yes, yes. Um, the one thing that surprised me was that so many people who knew did not understand that I was speaking as the victim and the survivor. I was not the perpetrator. <laughs> but that's how it began to be switched uh, by some people. Oh, how could you do this to your uh, poor, you know, sainted mother? Well, I mean, that, none of that was true. Our guest today is a film producer, author, and cultural commentator based in Seattle, Washington. She's appeared on CNN, Al Jazeera, The Red Table Talk, The New Yorker, and has contributed to renowned fictional work, including Broadway's Jagged Little Pill and NBC's This Is Us. Incredible. Her debut book, You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption, has received wide acclaim. And if that weren't enough, she's also the founder and executive director of the Adoptee Mentoring Society and the subject of Closure, a documentary that chronicles her search for her biological parents. Please welcome Angela Tucker. Hi, Chelsea. I'm so thrilled you are joining me for this episode. Uh, what a wild ride we have been on reading these books. I'm really excited and curious, too, specifically because of your background around yeah. adoption. And I don't know how much you want to get into that. but Yes, no, as people who have listened to my podcast for a long time know, I am donor conceived. And I'm going to just break that down a little bit because I feel like sometimes I say it and people don't realize what it means. Yeah. But donor conceived is basically my dad is a well, my biological genetic dad is a sperm donor. So he donated sperm anonymously. That is my uh, <laughs> that's my genetic father. And I was raised by my mom and a fake dad and some stepdads. And I contacted Angela because <laughs> I was on a totally different wild ride on Instagram talking about a totally different author, Joyce Maynard, who adopted two daughters and then it became an adoption dissolution where she found them a different home. And people said, you have to follow Angela Tucker's work. And so they sent me your stuff and I was like, oh my gosh, who is this? And I DM'd her and I was like, I would love to read a book with you about adoption. We were talking about transracial adoption, which is not what Christina Crawford's story is. I know this is so long but I'm always done because donor conceived people were often kept a secret, which adoption I think used to be and still is in many ways. But adoption has made progress in our cultural awareness a lot faster than donor conceived people because yeah. maybe because it's easier to keep donor conception a secret. I'm not sure what it is, but um, I was having a really hard time finding things that could help me understand like who I was and my identity. And so yes. while it's very different than adoption, I did find there's a tiny bit of crossover and where there is crossover, reading stuff about adoption identity actually helped me quite a bit. That's my big long thing. There's lots of new, like for the adoption world, we have conferences all over the place where we talk about shame and the secrecy and then adoptive parent motivation, which is the interesting thing about Joan and kind of the narcissism, which we can talk about. But I've seen now recently, a lot of these adoption conferences are including donor conceived people and the acronym NPE, which is non-paternity event. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is so weird. But Well, we should break down non-paternity event. It's a disruption in who you thought your parent was. So that could be learning you're adopted. That could be learning you're donor conceived. That could be 
my mom actually had an affair with someone else and it turns out the guy I thought was my dad is not my dad. Um, that would be like Jeanette McCurdy's story for anyone who listened to that episode. So non-parental event. <laughs> but it's kind of cool that these adoption conferences are really including donor-conceived people because so much of the experience is so similar. I Just know. like this lack of knowing who we are. And I think for Christina Crawford, that's what comes through towards the latter half of her book. And then I know she chose to try to find her birth family Mm -hmm. and they were both deceased. But this idea that like for Joan Crawford, there's that hope that we are like blank slates, you know, that you can just grab a newborn baby and whatever you instill upon them is what they will become. Yes. Completely avoiding their genetics or their background or their connection to their heritage or anything like that. That is so well said. And Joan even has a quote in her book where she said exactly that. She said, I used to think environment obliterated heredity. I was wrong. Unlike Christina and Christopher, the twins don't resent my life. They're pliant, joyous. They link arms with me. And off we march into whatever life may offer. Da, 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 da. And so basically she was saying, like, I thought my environment could overcome (laughs) like not being biologically related to Christina and Chris and that the twins kind of gave her what she wanted and we're going to get into who all these people are you guys don't worry yeah I mean do you want to give some background I just am like jumping too far into the book no let's jump in so Christina actually breezes past her adoption story and her parents in Mommy Dearest there's very little in it when I was reading it I sort of thought to myself oh Christina is just now coming to terms with what she went through with Joan, she has not even like begun to think about the adoption side of it. You know, the only part that I yeah. saw around the adoption is so fascinating because it's like an appendix. Yeah, but very it weird. wasn't until like the appendix that she writes about the connection to the Jewish mafia. That's who arranged her adoption, basically. And that's why they drove across the country to Florida so that Joan could say thank you to this Jewish mafia guy, the mob connection, which is so fascinating. And so, yeah, it's like literally smaller font, not part of like the main chapter that she alludes to being bought on the black market. That is so fascinating. I don't even think I caught that because it must have been buried. And also... In Joan's book, she's very specific to mention that Christina is of Scandinavian heritage and that Christopher is Scandinavian. It's like very important to her, which like we also have to note, like there's really no way to know if that was true. She was blonde, which was clearly important to her. But it it is wild to skip over how horrific the adoption agencies were. One, her specific adoption agency and also in that time. It's like almost not even dug into. No, I mean, it's more like... I mean, what Georgia Tan did, who... Oh, we have to talk about Georgia Tan. And that's the the latter adoptions, the twins. We're putting twins in quotes, Cindy and Kathy. And Christina says, you know, mom ordered twins and twins arrived. They don't seem to be twins. And, <laughs> you know, genetics are a funny thing. So, you know, maybe they could be twins. But we, we definitely when you look at photos of them at all ages, you're like, they don't appear visually to be twins, even in the, uh, what's it called, non, they're not fraternal twins, but even so, they don't appear to be sisters. Right. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I think when you use the word adoption agencies, we just have to be really broad about it because that's not what this was. Yeah, this was like child trafficking. Basically, yes. I mean, Georgia Tan would steal babies from poor women in Tennessee because she really believed that kids should be brought up by wealthy individuals, that that would give them a better life. So it's like truly believing that. And of course, that ended up being famous celebrities like Joan Crawford, who would get these babies. Yeah. And Georgia Tan is now known as the baby thief. She trafficked over 5,000 children. 5,000! So many children died in this journey. So of those 5,000, many of them did not live as she was like doing these practices. And there's a documentary, there's great books. There's also a terrible book that I was accidentally recommended to read called Before We Were Yours. And it is a historical fiction about Georgia Tan and these kids. I say terrible because the historical fiction part is good, but the other parts are not. (laughs) However, Georgia Tan's a very fascinating individual. And I think it's also notable that Joan gets Christina through the Jewish mafia. Then she procures another little boy and then when she does press about him the boy's biological mother recognizes his birth date and the location is like this is my son given back to me joan writes in there that she was blackmailed and they wanted money and as soon as the biological mother got him back she sold him but again like there's no way to know if that's true like if he was stolen and the mother got him back or if the mother was trying to get money from celebrities like it could be fiction I don't know even outside of the adoption aspects it is hard to read Joan's autobiography without thinking of a little bit fictionalized like she just loves to paint her life story in a very certain way and I think that's partly what Christina is talking about in Mommy Dearest too is that these kids were there to fulfill this image yeah Yeah, I really thought her autobiography was going to do a better job of painting the image she wanted to paint, but they don't even do a great, like, she writes sentences in there of like, I was their mother. And you're like, but that sounds like you weren't. Maybe like write something a little more specific. What she writes about the children is awful in her own book, not Mommy Dearest, but like what Joan writes. Well, I got one quote from her own book. The Portrait of Joan. Yes. This isn't awful, but it is illuminating of her mindset. This is kind of about how she wants to be seen as a disciplinarian and make sure that people know that she was strict, but not, you know, Mommy Dearest came out way after, but I bet she knew some of the stuff that she actually did would come out. And so she's kind of trying to defend her discipline style. So she says, being a mother is a full-time job. There are plenty of people who have thought me too loving. Others have criticized me for being too severe. They've warned me that a child thinks anyone who disciplines them is against them. Discipline is a part of a child's security. So she's like... Yeah, she's hedging. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, all of the defenses of Joan, because, you know, Christina was maligned and not believed. People spoke out against her account. But when they do, they would say, like, she was disciplined, but it was good. They wouldn't say... She wasn't like that at all. They would say, like, of course she was a disciplinarian, but it was it was positive. I mean, right. Here's a couple sentences I want to because also the children are not a large part of Joan's autobiography. 
a few things she said that we must talk about. She said, the one worry that seems to haunt every adopted parent is, will the child feel he is given enough affection if he's told he's adopted? Some years ago, when Christine was 14, Christopher 11, a friend with adopted children, asked me if she should tell them they were adopted. And she said, talk to my older children, let them answer your question. Then she writes these answers that Christopher and Christina gave of feeling special. And then she writes, I once asked Christina if she ever worried or wondered who her original parents were. She looked at me with complete trust. Why no mother? I've never even thought about it. (laughs) And this is sort of held up as success. Like what you want is for the kid to never even think about where they came from because that is proof they love you and you were a good parent. There's some of that that still happens in adoption today. Like the language yeah. uh, a lot of adoptive parents say to their kids is you were chosen. And that word can get really twisted for adoptees to make us think that we have to be grateful. You know, like that's the title of my book, because yeah. even with parents who maybe aren't narcissists and aren't like overtly buying kids to show this perfect life, there still is this undercurrent feeling of like, actually, one kid that I mentor, a teenager, he said to me that he feels like he needs to be a good return on the investment for his parents. This was a teenager. I know his parents and his parents don't really speak that way. So it's really just this deep belief and kind of societal view that, yeah, if you're adopted, you should show extra gratitude for what you've been given. Yes. And there's definitely that view on Christina. Like, even when she comes out with her account, like, Betty Davis has a quote about her. And Betty Davis hated Joan Crawford, hated her with her whole heart. They have the famous feud. Highly recommend the series on FX. But... Betty Davis said Christina's book was trash and declared it was a, quote, terrible, terrible thing for Christina to have done to someone who saved you from the orphanage and foster homes. I think specific to Christina's story is that we just saved you from the orphanage and foster homes isn't the same as being bought, sold or like (laughs) one that's not even like true to her story, but to the sentiment of don't tell the truth on Joan, even though I hate her because you were an orphan, you were adopted. And then later I find it notable that the children of Betty Davis wrote similar memoirs saying my mom was horrible to me. So she was saying like, right, they did tell alls. Yeah. She was talking about herself when she said right. that. Right. Yeah. Which is often the case. Yeah. So the um. other thing I'll read from Joan before we dive into Christina's story I want to call these four sentences masterful in their maniacal (laughs) use of semantics. Listen to this. It isn't easy to cope with a problem child. In the hearing at a New York court four years ago, the judge made that very clear. Christopher was sentenced to a school where he had the advantage of excellent psychiatric care. As this is being written, he is 19, he is married, and has a darling infant girl. (laughs) I mean, that is unbelievable. So Christopher is Christina's brother. He is the second boy that Joan adopts, and she learns to change their birth dates and their names. so She changes everyone's birth dates. She even changes her own. Yeah, so that they can't be traced and that the moms can't come for them. And 
in Christina's book, she writes about the severe abuse that Christopher went through under Joan's care. And then he's called a problem child. She takes him to a juvenile court and puts him in a psychiatric facility. And then Christopher gave an interview much, much later. It was like the single interview he ever did. And I have quotes from it where he said when he was seven years old, he said, Joan caught him playing with matches and made him hold his hand in the fireplace as punishment. I had blisters all over my hand, he recalled. And that day I ran away for the first time. And then he said, Joan used to keep him strapped into a bed and a harness until he was 12 years old. Christina writes about this too, that he like couldn't get out of bed at night. He was like strapped in so that he wouldn't go pee. Christopher's final interaction with Joan was a plea for help for his infant daughter. He said, I called JC. He calls her JC instead of Joan Crawford, her mom. He says, I called JC and said, I need your help. Your granddaughter needs blood and she needs it now. She might die, Christopher recalled. JC said, she's not my granddaughter. You were adopted. I lost my temper and slammed on the phone so hard I broke the receiver. That was the last contact we ever had. Right. Something that I come upon a lot in the adoption world is how often people think adoption is just like about a kid. You know, even for me, I'll say I'm an adult adoptee and people will be like, what does that mean? What language is that? And then they'll think about it, be like, oh, you're an adopted child. And people forget it's lifelong. And even here, and I've heard other accounts where adoptive parents are like that with their grandkids through their adopted child, that there is like a line of demarcation. Those really aren't my kids, especially if they're troublesome. And that's actually where the secrets and shame stuff unravels, because so often people attribute every negative thing about an adoptee to their nature and every positive thing to their nurture. So if they're acting a fool, it's because their birth parents must be, you know, unwell or have issues. Right. And like, it's a great way to not take any responsibility, blame, blame or responsibility for anything. Such a good point. Also, I also have like my own journey with language where like I often identify as a donor kid. And I have to remember that many other donor kids are like, don't say that you're an adult, full ass grown lady. Like we're right. adult people, like donor children. You're not children, you're adults. However, it's very important to remember exactly what you said of like, it's easier to talk about when you are a kid. It's harder to talk about when you grow up and you're an adult and you have feelings about it. Also, though, society wants adoptees to be infantilized forever. And this is what, like, Joan had an issue with so many other adoptive parents. They love adopting a baby, a toddler, a little kid. But once you have your own thoughts, teenagers, adulthood, then it's like, we don't want that anymore. Not fun anymore. Yeah. Another very distinct similarity between our worlds is the reaction that parents will give you for talking about your feelings. And I'm not talking about your own parents. I'm talking about other parents. In the donor world, they're called recipient parents. They received the quote unquote donation. Um, In the adoptive world, they're, you know, adoptive parents, but they will get so, so angry and mean and sharp and passive aggressive with you for simply stating your own lived experience. And I, oh yeah, it's still, it happens to me. Like I will have adoptive parents come and be mad at me for talking about being donor conceived. And it's like, you're not even my parent. Like you got to get out of here, dog. Like, what are you doing? So when I was on 
the film festival circuit for my documentary, which chronicles my search for my birth parents. And it actually features my adoptive parents who are really supportive of me trying to find my birth parents. It's really great. They're in the film. It's clear that they are really excited to meet my birth mom and my birth dad. My mom says when she first meets my birth mom, like, thank you. She just thanks her. And she says something about how we raised Angela together, even though we didn't know where you were, who you were. It's really beautiful. That's gonna make me cry. (laughs) It's gonna make me cry. Yeah, really great. But when I was like, after the film would play, and I do Q&As, Sometimes my parents were in the audience, and they were really in the audience because they love to support anything their kids do. They adopted seven of us, and they're just like, yay, Angela has a thing. Let's go. Let's support. I would share, usually, one thing that people hated, I would say, is I love my adoptive parents, but I hate that I'm adopted. And people are just like, what? And they would always beeline to my parents afterwards and just say to them, are you okay? Like, oh no, you must be so hurt by how she spoke. Thankfully, my parents are like, we're really proud of her for speaking her truth. But it was, and it still is with my book. People will often say like, it's so cool you wrote a book, but like, did you consult your parents and how did they feel about it? It's like, what? It always says more about the person reacting than it says about you or what you actually said. Their insecurities. That, it's right. always about them. That being said, it's still very frustrating to have to take in that energy. At least I find it frustrating. It's also very interesting that even in its most positive light, they just don't want you to have any feelings about who you are or the process that created you. And it's like, how is that your right to dictate that I'm not allowed to feel anything about the literal DNA in my body. (laughs) Yeah, I really think that this thing that Joan did, too, where when you adopt a kid, you want them to be an extension of you. And so any critique of like the process or the system, I feel like that's what it's hitting up against, the fragility of that process. I think another piece is that I often ask like perspective adoptive parents, what their motivation is to adopt. Like, and why what do you, you want hear? to? Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes people say like, oh, I just want to help. And so I'm like, okay, if you want to help, then you would adopt a child from foster care who really needs to be adopted. And we know there was abuse. Why are you choosing to adopt a newborn? And, you know, there's a waiting list. It costs a lot. And then the answers get a little trickier. And it's usually like, I just want to be a parent. Sometimes things come out like I've struggled with infertility for years and I haven't been able to conceive. So then you see like, okay, we need to make sure you separate those two things. Adopting a child is not a cure for your infertility. This child you adopt is not going to become the child you wished you could have. And that gets really difficult for people to like tease apart. But you see how enmeshed it gets when the kid gets older and the parents are mad that they're not doing the things that they wanted them to do or acting how they wanted to. That is so well said. And yes, it's it's such a tough mental thing to understand. And I think, you know, I obviously can't speak for the whole experience, but in my narrow background and point of view, I think people believe with donor conception, they'll have a better chance at making sure that kid is the things they are because they right. are typically uh, always half. (laughs) So it's like they're related to one of the parents involved in the situation. Um, 
they think that that'll be better than maybe wholly unrelated. Complete <laughs> and, um, strangers. Complete yes. strangers. And I think what's so interesting too, I swear to God, you guys were going to get into Christina's book, but I can't stop talking to Angela about this, which is that the statistics too of how like there's this incredible study. There's not many studies done on donor conceived kids because they're still quite hidden. So they can't like actually find the data, but usually people who use donor conception are older because it's a fertility thing. And nowadays, it wasn't when I was born, but nowadays it takes money and medical care. So they have more money. And those two stats usually indicate a marriage lasting for much longer. Like the divorce rates go down when you're older and you have money. When you bring a donor conceived child into the mix, the divorce rates go way, way, way up. And the amount of donor kids from quote unquote broken homes. I know we don't use that term anymore, but I do. The amount of donor kids from broken homes is actually quite high, which actually was a very comforting statistic for me because I I always thought I was like a fucking freak. And it, it was like, oh no, like tons of donor conceived kids don't end up in the care of those two parents that made the decision to bring it Probably in. so similar to, I mean, what you were talking about on Instagram around the rehoming. People yeah. don't realize, but rehoming as well as adoptees becoming estranged from their adoptive parents. It's like all kind of in the same vein. Yeah. And I was told that they don't use rehoming anymore. They use adoption dissolution. Is that right? I have no idea. Very similar, though, to how you talked about how it might not be like PC to say broken homes. But I do use the word rehoming because I think it's most vivid. People think about pets. And then that helps me to like tell the story. I think adoption disillusion is one of those places that we're trying to make it sound a little bit more like child welfare-y and like professional than yeah. the reality. And I think the reality is so important. It's like when I work with teens and kids who ask me How is adoption different than abduction? You know, like in child welfare agencies, we would never use that language. But I'm like, if kids have the questions and are able to kind of see the line, we need to call it what it is. Totally. It's the same thing with um, donors being called donors and then it being a donation. It's very positive language to describe something uh, that's actually inaccurate because it's always a financial transaction. (laughs) I guess I can't say always, but I'm going to say 99%. It is a financial transaction. It's not a donation. I think the words are important and yes, let's get into the book, but the words are important because it's the way that we are like subtly gaslighting adoptees in thinking this is, this should be so great. And then adoptees are like, what's my problem? Like I was adopted to a celebrity. I should be happy. Completely. And I think what's interesting with Mommy Dearest is that like I could read into it, like how much of Joan's behavior and Christina's own sort of self-reflection issues like do include her adoptive story even though it's not at the forefront of her mind it's not something that's processed in this book but what happens with her and there's so much here so we're going to kind of go in like big sections is that when she is adopted Joan Crawford names her Joan Crawford Jr. and then six months later is like "Mm, I don't know about that (laughs) and renames her to Christina but also she knows that she was supposed to be Joan Jr. And for whatever reason, you know, a few months later is no longer. And I do want to include that there are lots of, I'm not going to say normal, but there's lots of just childhood moments. It's not just an entire book on like these abuses, which I think the movie is what it made it. And I also think it does a disservice to the story because people don't see that there was a lot going on here. And what sort of happens is that Christina... (laughs) 
so interesting. She talks about, she's like, yeah, I didn't agree with my mom and I was really outspoken. I was a really outgoing kid and I talked back. And because of that, Joan is sort of like, then I don't like you. And you are deserving of the punishment I give you, which includes being locked in the bed. You know, Joan is, uh, she suffered from alcoholism. Everyone attests to this, including Christina, and that she would have these things called night raids. Where night she would, raids were terrible. Yeah, raid the house being like, there's a spot of dust on my desk. And now then she would wake up her nine-year-old daughter, Christina, and be like, clean the entire room top to bottom all night long. The or beatings she, with the hairbrushes, you know, or oh. even the less obvious abuse, but the gifts or the handwriting thank you cards. Oh my gosh, we like, have to talk about this. So there are like two things are like huge themes in this book. One is that Joan was like, you have to write a thank you card to every single person who ever sends you anything, including your siblings. And it's a child, you know, writing out these thank you cards, but they're intense. Like the Christmas thank you cards, the Easter thank you cards, the Memorial Day thank you cards, like all the thank you cards are these like ongoing intense asks and then they become like punishment but it's also Joan just wants the thank you cards and even when she sends Christina away to boarding school she's like where are the thank you cards (laughs) yeah Uh, and really and like Christina would she talks about doing her best to like expand her vocabulary and how to thank people she's a kid and you know I've done this where you just write the same thing over and over as a kid thank you so much for the gift I'm gonna use it but she would give it to Joan who would like put a red pen strike through a word like not good enough this is where it like gets blurred where it's like what's Joan's weird personality and what becomes abuse because there are other like very clear cut things like when she can no longer afford servants that she brings Christina to like make the drinks and bring the food and there's that famous scene from Mommy Dearest where she finds a wire hanger in Christina's closet but they're only supposed to use padded hangers and she rips the closet apart and she screams, no wire hangers, no more wire hangers. And Christina is like beaten and made to like clean it up all night. And then of course, Joan Crawford was married several times, but Christina talks about all the uncles, men she was dating who would come into the picture who they were told to call uncle, uncle this, uncle this. And then I think I am going to say the word love. What I love about this story, I love nuance and complexity because it makes it very hard for people to be on yeah agree with agree with or disagree with or just like outright it makes it hard for people to just do the black and white thinking yes yes and christina you know christina has some rough things she writes in here i don't know if it's um is she's like Islamophobia. Like she's just like, and then there were some dark haired men who didn't speak English, which was so offensive. Like it wasn't their first language. And you're like, Christina. (laughs) And she's like, but also I think she's using the rules of Joan's world to try and get people to judge Joan of like, she dated these like non-American men. And then later she gets quite homophobic when she talks about her mom being a secret lesbian and having all these like um, lesbian affairs that are of course like tawdry and offensive. The biggest way that I love the nuance and complexity in thinking about Mommy Dearest is I think I do believe that Joan probably doesn't she wouldn't say that it was abuse. You know I think deep down there's certainly allusions to her understanding that it was too far but I think a lot of it truly is her trying to discipline and feeling like it was appropriate. It's a little bit hard to read this book through today's viewpoint, you know, where 
lots of people use the word trauma with relation to their upbringing, whether it's valid or not. That really wasn't the case in the 50s and the 40s. And so Absolutely. And also, you know, things like strapping a child to a bed was, I mean, they made those beds for children. Like this, this was, I'm not going to say a common practice, but it was an understood one. It was available in a store. So that's clearly a different time of, you know, and how we think about spanking a kid and how our thoughts on that have changed even just from the 90s you know as well as just like the nuclear parent model which is like you have one or two parents to do all things for a child which is really crazy and i don't like america's view on that but having all these other men who she calls uncle or who she like really grew to think of in positive ways i think was it philip who was someone that she like really looked up to and then one day he snapped and changed and like beat her but outside of that i think like a more collectivist parenting strategy is really great for a lot of us to have multiple adults in our lives who care about us and specifically for someone like joan who has a crazy work schedule and is out it's not like you don't want nannies and servants exactly but like people who truly are in their lives and care about them is not a bad thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think there is a lens on this, both from Joan and Christina of like, Joan was a single mom and there was no father. And even just that Joan had to do the adoption paperwork in Vegas because no one would allow a single mother. A single mom to do it in California. Yeah, exactly. it's illegal. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and then Christina turns around to be like, yeah, we wanted a father. Like, why did this lady get us? And, you know, so it's like very nuanced. But also even the adoption aside, let's say she was Joan's biological child going through that many father figures or having like this new dude hit you and then disappear and then. Real confusing. Yeah. And then also Philip supposedly adopts Christopher with Joan. And then he disappears. And then later it comes out that he was never on the adoption paperwork anyway. A lot of it is fascinatingly similar, though, to Joan's upbringing. Yeah. Right? That she had a man, her dad, maybe, who was in his, her life and then disappeared. Yeah. And then there was another guy who was there and then was gone. So I'm like, back to that thought and question, asking people who choose to adopt why they are doing it. It's really enlightening to think about their past history, too, you know, and I think sometimes we repeat that history and absolutely that happened here. I think so, too. And let's just pretend having read a bunch about Joan, if we were like, why do you think Joan adopted? Christina will obviously say it was for the press opportunities and for image or to have as the quote unquote twins ended up being fans, live in yeah. fans. Yeah. W- what would be your thought having read all this? There's like a deep void that I feel like I was reading a little bit about Joan's life outside of the book, you know, and I was Googling stuff and I found that there was some producer on set who asked her, like, who is the real Joan? Who are you? And she couldn't answer and became really flustered. And so there was a sense of like that I feel like adopting was filling a void that she couldn't name. It was more than just, like, trying to have publicity stunts and appear to have the perfect family. And for me, I mean, I do so much work in abandonment issues and stuff like that. But I feel like it was a part of what made her an incredible actress was that you oftentimes don't know who you are. And so you're able to play the part of others really well. 
I think she was trying to fill a void. Yeah, I think that's well said. And also Christina talks about she has this insatiable need for love. And it can't be filled. And any minor slight, no matter how small, Joan will hang on to forever. Yes. I was like, ooh, that feels like me. Um, where you're like, I'll remember that. Like, she just, like, holds on to it. I will say, also very interesting to not knowing who she is, Joan Crawford, that was not the name she was born with. She goes through a couple names, and then this woman was named in an MGM Name a Movie Star contest. Isn't that so funny? And I, yeah. don't you think that her original name was kind of fantastic? Yes, Lu- wait, what Lucille was it Lucille LaFleur, or like... Yeah, Lucille Faye Lassure. It's an incredible Lucille name. Lucille Lassure. Lucille so Lassure, yeah. To go from that to Joan Crawford. And she hated the name Joan Crawford, but literally people wrote into a magazine and they were like, let's name this lady Joan Crawford. And they were like, okay. And then everyone was in on it and she becomes the star Joan Crawford. <laughs> I'm laughing about it, but like that, that had to be horrifying for her too, like to sort of make that trade for stardom. Well, yeah, reinventing who you are, your age always being a mystery, what year were you born, she doesn't really like to say. And that part goes back to what I am talking about with, like, who are you really mm-hmm. and not knowing. Yeah, yes, and and how that is a very central theme in an adoptive child's life of who Identity. Are, yes, exactly. Who am I? And yes. that you're re- exactly what you said, recreating it. Well, Where did I come from? Yes. yes. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. And then what happens is that she sends Christina away to the Chadwick School, which is a school run by the Chadwick family, Mr. and Mr. Chadwick. And... She just leaves her there. She stops singeing her clothes. She has all her clothes removed at one point. Clothes are a big theme in their feud of Christina always feeling like Joan dressed her weirdly or Joan wouldn't dress her and how embarrassed she was to be at school. And and Joan's also known for her fashion. And the Chadwick family really takes her on to the point that it threatens Joan. Which I think Christina's like 10 years old. Yeah. When she goes to the boarding school. always shocking to me where she would be like, you know, and then for years I was there. So I was 12 years old. And you're like, whoa. (laughs) You're a child. A child. And Christina, while she's at the school, gets a crush on this guy who's in the stable. And the stable boy. It is a, this is a heartbreaking story because she goes there wanting to kiss him. She has no concept of what sex is, what her body is until, I mean, he rapes her because she has no idea. She can't consent. She doesn't know what's happening. And she knows she feels this sharp pain. And then afterwards, how confusing she's like I loved being hell I loved being loved by someone and then he told me like make sure you only say yes to what we did with other men if you really want it well I feel like there was a hint at perhaps this guy was not a kid I also read him as like a teen or an adult a young like 1920 something like that because I feel like there was a in that statement of like kind of don't give this away to anybody I can't imagine a 14 year old having a little drop of wisdom pearl after doing that. You know, also it was like like the first person who ever told her anything about anything, (laughs) you know, that is truly traumatizing. And then, you know, she tells her friends and then it goes around school. She becomes ostracized. 
the Chadwick family calls Joan. And from that point on, Joan labels her as like a whore and a hussy. And like you said, like this bad problem adoptee that she no longer really wants in her life. Yeah. And then Christine has to go through all the shame when she hasn't even really understood what's happened. And then later, Joan will feel that the Chadwicks have come to love her too much. And she has her pretty much stolen away in a car and taken to a convent. And she misses her graduation. She leaves her there. And meanwhile, Christina prints these letters back and forth in the book of them writing to each other. Fascinating. Yes. I'm going to call it the most passive aggressive literature I've ever read in my life. (laughs) Wasn't it wild to, to read? These words where Joan would be like, oh, I just love you so much. Thank you so much for your note. It meant so much to me. And then, but inside was just them writing poison back and forth to each other. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's just a different medium for what was happening earlier on in life where it was like, yeah, when the cameras come in, open the presents and look happy and tell them how grateful you are for all these gifts but then when the doors closed and everybody leaves like you can't have those gifts yeah you're gonna give them away it's that but in letter writing form yes because she knows the nuns are reading the letters or that the letters could get out and so she has to write like i love you i care about you but inside is also saying no to like new underwear or coming to her graduation or letting her come home for holidays and like all these things and then uh, you know, there a lot happens, so I'm going to kind of move to the part where Christina is going to go to Carnegie Mellon, and Joan uses this to constantly threaten her with, I, and so many letters being like, if you contact the Chadwicks ever again, even to say hi, I will take you out of college. If you don't stay in the dorms all summer by yourself, I will take you out of college. If you go visit your friend, I'll take you out of college, until finally she gets to college, and... <laughs> taste freedom for the first time. Here's something I thought was like really interesting and I really want your take on it. Christina decides she wants to be an actress. Yeah. And she writes this about it. I'm really curious how you read this. She said, it really had very little to do with my mother's being a movie star because I did not equate wanting to be a stage actress with what she did in the dark, quiet sound stages I'd visited since infancy. She neither encouraged nor discouraged me. All she said was that I had no idea what was waiting for me, which was true. But in the beginning, it was all excitement and good times. But pretty wild to take on the exact profession of your mother thinking it has no relation to your mother. It's just like another power struggle. And I think I read somewhere that Christina wasn't performing well in some movie and Joan took that same role and did it. Oh, that's in the end of the book. Okay, wait, we have to talk about this. So she leaves college. She goes to New York. She's like, I'm going to become an actress. There's a lot of back and forth, but basically she would get little movie roles, but then Joan would drop out of a different movie that the director had as punishment. But she would say, of course I support Christina, but then directors would yes. come to her and say, um, we just lost this entire movie because we decided to work with you. And we're going to come back to this like one interview she does that changes everything. But The craziest part of this book is that Christina goes back and forth with acting like she takes years off. But finally, she is in a soap opera and she's actually very close with Joan. They see each other all the time. They write each other letters all the time. Joan has come forward to like throw this incredible first wedding for Christina. And 
Christina gets very sick. She has, it's kind of actually hard to know what she has, but she has some sort of surgery on a fallopian tube, but she... I could not understand I could not understand part. it either. But she, I mean, she like okay. passes out and is in the ER and then there's surgery. And when she's passed out in the ER, she learns that Joan says, since Christina's sick, I will play her role in the soap opera, no problem. And please keep in mind, these women are 30 years apart in age. But it's a press moment. So they say yes. And Christina's like, wait, my mom's going to take one of the my only role. roles. And, and her mom takes it and plays her part. Yeah, and talks about it like she's giving a, giving back, helping Christina. She's helping Christina. She said, I didn't want them to cut your role out of the show, so I was keeping the role alive, as if there's any world where you can make that switch. It is so wild, and there's so much jealousy between them. It's really hard to have two people who both are really self-centered have conversations of any meaning between the two of them. Yeah. That's really what it feels like. Yeah, because while... Joan is very insecure and jealous of Christina's success. Christina is also very judgmental of Joan's success. She talks about the roles she was trashing. She talks about, you know, her mom not being a very good actress. So it's like it goes both ways, even though at the end of the day, one's the mom and one is the daughter. So one learned yes. it from the other. Exactly. Again, though, it's it's interesting. I think reading Joan Crawford the words that sometimes we use to really ambitious women, like, I didn't want to catch myself labeling her narcissistic. Mm. Because I think that term is misused. overused, misused. And, like, what if she was a really driven woman who was like, yeah. we do have to make choices. I mean, I am child-free by choice. My husband and I have been married for 14 years. We're so happy. We love supporting kids. I love being an auntie to everyone in the world. But there are people who are like, it's like self-centered to focus on your career and to do all this stuff. And yeah, that's just crazy. And it's being less tolerated now. But I think a little bit about that for Joan, but I think differently for Christina in her era. And that yeah. aspect of not just like being so driven to be the best actor ever, but instead there's all the confusion from her childhood and what is family. And yeah, so while I feel sad that Christina's acting career wasn't as successful as she wished and as her mom, I can't bring myself to think of them as equals in that sense. Of course. No, of you course. Know? I think they're eons apart I mean they're so far apart especially in terms of their experiences their success that how they were talked about written about and I think it kind of goes back to this one interview I want to talk about which it's like in the 1960s it's a red book interview it's in the magazine red book if you guys remember that and Christina writes about the interview in her book and Joan acknowledges the interview in her book and it's called The Revolt of Christina Crawford. That's the headline. And I will say Christina's a little bit of a unreliable narrator in the way where I 
read what Christina said in the book about the interview, which is that I took this one interview. I did my very best to give all the perfect answers that my mother always instructed me to give, painting only the best picture of her. Yet my mother gave really negative quotes about me. I don't know why they chose that headline. I couldn't take it, but it caused like quite a stir and sort of this headline that like Joan and her daughter are in in an actress feud. (laughs) Okay, so then I go and I read the interview and I was like, the reason she's an unreliable narrator is that I wish in the book she had said, I told that interviewer everything I told you in this book, minus the abuse. But like she told them about the clothes, being sent away to school, the discipline, the punishment, how horrible she was to her, how jealous she was. Like, it's all in the Red Book interview. So that's where I was like, okay, Christina's playing a little coy. Like I did my best and this accidentally happened. And then because I do think throughout her book and what we know in history is that she's also waiting to see if she gets to remain Joan Crawford's daughter, both in the will and in her Mm, legacy. And she has to make a bid for that, especially when she's writing that book because she had been cut out of the will, but was going to court to get back into the will. But this is in Joan's book about this moment. She said, and Christina is in Hollywood working in films. She is 21, a beautiful, ambitious young actress fighting her way up. Columnist High Gardner recently asked me, Joan, why are you against Tina's career as an actress? If she weren't an actress, High, I'd be the most disappointed woman in the world. It's been her ambition, da, da, da. I'll admit I had two weeks disappointment when she refused to finish college, when she left Carnegie Tech in favor of theater. I wanted her first to have the education I felt she needed, but this is Tina's life. And by the way, I've opened for her every stage and film door at my command. Every producer, every director I know. Against her career as an actress, what a strange contradiction that would be. I am only filled with sorrow and compassion for my daughter because she's paying too much for whatever it is she wants. I certainly understand ambition, but you can't afford to throw away people, especially the people who love you, and you can't afford to use them. Mother-daughter feuds make for reams of prints, but they also make for reams of inaccuracies. Then she talks about how she did tell Christina who her birth parents were, and she did give her her passport. And then one more thing I have to read is she said, It has also been stated that I asked her to change her name for theatrical purposes. When Christina appeared in her first off-Broadway show, a huge placard announced her as Joan Crawford's daughter, Christina Crawford. No actress profits from this type of billing. It detracts from her own personality. I told Tina that if I were she and the theater refused to bill me in my own right and insisted on the Joan Crawford's daughter bit, I'd change my name. (laughs) So... I mean, that's pretty brutal to write about your daughter. It's a business transaction. It really is. Yeah, it is as if Christina is Betty Davis and she is putting curated quotes in her book that will sting like a sword, you know, being shoved into her gut when she reads them. Or you could read it as Joan never really had that empathy that we assume mothers bestow on their kids and if she doesn't then this makes great sense in how she's talking because it's the same as how she navigated the early 1920s and 30s in Hollywood with all these men and then the silent film era like I kind of don't differentiate anymore and I try to take away what we think motherhood means And then we can get a really consistent picture of who Joan was. I mean, it's difficult because the other two, the younger two who love Joan, you know, it's a much different story. But if we just think about Christina and Chris, the two older ones, then it makes sense to me that it's just all part of like a really driven 
single minded, single focused individual. Yes. Yes. I think you touched on something so important and it, it kind of parlays into all of Christina's detractors and how to look at the story. So uh, of people saying this book is fiction or exaggeration or it's not true. And so one thing I really want to talk about is that (laughs) in one instance of this, everyone knows that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis had an unreal feud and Joan pulled off. I mean, she pulled off some moves where you got to be like, damn, that was good. Like when (laughs) Betty Davis is nominated instead of her for whatever happened to baby Jane, she finds a way to become the person who will accept the Oscar on behalf of Anne Bancroft, who actually wins and gets to accept the Oscar instead of her nemesis, Betty. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, like you got to give her a little clap, like 10, 10, Right. Grudge bitch move, you know, like, well, also, that's the thing that, like, I don't want to say out loud, but she does have skills. We could call it psychologically manipulative, but also it could be like, well, this is how so many men who work their way up in banking, whatever world. Totally. And that's how this is real. That's the world they lived in. And it's the world she played the game in to get to be an actress who survived in Hollywood past 40 in an era that actresses were done at like 22. It's remarkable. However, why can't people see that someone capable of all of that manipulation that's so fond to look upon, like, whoa, these crazy Hollywood battles, that she's perfectly capable of the same things when her daughter becomes an actress. And it is that concept of motherhood or that Christina's adopted that makes people unable to believe that these qualities that sh- remains in other areas of her life. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that adoption piece is just huge. Just the yeah. fact that somebody cared enough to adopt her, even though that's... Should be enough. Yeah. Yes. Again, the story being adopted and not bought and brokered, which was the truth. Right. And then right. the other thing I'll say is that, so Cindy and Kathy, the twins, have always spoken out against Christina. It's interesting because they never quite say themselves, Christina lied. They say, that's not the mother I knew. That was the best mother ever. However, they are years apart. So by the time Christina sent off to boarding school, the twins are like two years old. Really young. And Joan is in a different period in her life. I mean, we do have to think about that for all of us. Our 20s are different than our 30s are different than our 40s and how we relate. I don't think that Joan all of a sudden became a totally different person, but... I can imagine it was a different household than what Christina and Chris had. I feel like it's not talked about enough in any household with any familiar relationship that siblings can have very different experiences of their childhood and of their parents, especially when there's years between them. Like you can have a totally different view on things as siblings. It reminds me also of the memoir Educated, you know, where where the brothers are like, well, I didn't really see it like that. But that's very different than like that didn't happen. But siblings having different accounts really seem to rock people's perception of the truth. And this is the case for adoption too. Adoptees can have such different experiences in how we view the world, but also I think like for adoption, the same act, even if it's a legitimate adoption. So like what's taking place nowadays where A prospective adoptive mother meets an expectant mother who doesn't know what to do with her pregnancy and she chooses adoption. And then the child is adopted. That can be stated in one way from the adoptive parents. Like we 
had this beautiful relationship with your birth mother and she really trusted us and she chose us to be your parents. An adoptee's viewpoint could be the same instance where it's like, you didn't ask my birth mother what she needed in order to keep me or you didn't ask the agency if some of the funding could go to support her so she could get a house and that would let her parent me like this is the same interaction but seen totally differently and both valid yeah yeah wow that is so that's very well said and very well put and and also that they're both valid they're both valid because you're two different human beings at two different age points with two different perspectives and personalities and, and life experiences. On the same instance. On the same yes. instance. Yes, absolutely. And so when people speak out against Christina, that's kind of how I take it in of like, to me, we cannot litigate the truth here. Like this is Christina's experience and the twins had a different experience. And also Christopher had a very similar experience to Christina. There's a lot of different accounts that go back and forth of people weighing in on this. And, you know, it's funny. I think Christina went on Larry King Live at some point and right after her book came out and she had said something like, I didn't know that this was going to become a book. And it was kind of strange. Like she had said, this is my first book, so I didn't know how publishing worked. And so I was just writing like basically a diary for my family to be able to heal or something. And I'm kind of like, well, maybe, but probably not. But yeah, so the book starts with uh, my mother has died and it ends with we've been cut out of the will and the famous sentence is Christopher and Christina will receive nothing for reasons that are very well known to them. To them, And this sort of other, something else I read, I'm going to call it a rumor because I just, I don't know how fact-checked it is, but that Joe knew Christina had already started working on the book That became Mommy Dearest. And so she's cut out of the will because she knew she was working on something. But again, what's really interesting is she's sort of like, my mother and I were very close at the end. I don't know what I did to deserve this. I tried my best. She blindsided me with this. And that wasn't what I was expecting her point of view to be. It's kind of a nice way to end this whole trial of the book, right? Yeah. And also, if she's going to legally dissent to the will that's important it's an important piece that she doesn't agree there was a reason to be cut out right very interesting to the will too is that you guys there's twins but kathy is given (laughs) all of her personal belongings and kathy and cindy are given money but poor cindy sounds like she lost out as well for reasons we will never know, even though that may be well known to them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. They- <laughs> it's pretty. Oh, it's pretty wild. And then I would say the last thing is that I, you know, in doing other research on this, I read this interview Christina gave when she re-released the book thirty years later, and the interviewer wrote, "Christina might be many things: disillusioned, sad, a bit defensive, but she does not strike me as either a fantasist or a liar." And she has her supporters, too. And she talks about all the people who come up with her account. And I was like, who is this reporter who, like, went and visited her in Iowa? It's Elizabeth Day, the podcaster. Idaho. (laughs) Which was just really interesting, too, that she met her and, like, sat with her and was like, she's mistrustful, she's defensive, but, like, you know, she did not make this up out of nowhere. I think I read that or saw that, too. Yeah, it was The Guardian. Okay, yes, because that journalist was describing the home too and like there's no pictures on the walls like it feels devoid of 
familial empathy kind of thing is kind of how she was making it seem, which as an adoptee, I just felt curious about that. In my house, it is very homey. And like, I feel like because of being adopted, even though I had really great upbringing, the sense of like being home and everything having its place is really important to me. So I'm curious about Christina's identity now. I think she talks a lot about the work she does, which is on a reservation or something at a casino in yeah. Idaho. Yeah. And just like, it seems like there's, like we talk about adoptees being a lifelong endeavor. It's like, still, there's so many ways that she might be trying to find family, trying to find identity, and to have, like, blank walls in her home is kind of interesting psychologically. Yeah, I really liked that she included that detail because it kind of is like, oh, yeah, it just shows you who Christina is maybe more than other details. Another one that really jumped out to me because I, too, have a lot of thoughts and feelings about how or if I'm going to have kids. And Christina said, like, I'm not I never had kids and I've never regretted it. I don't know how to be a parent. I've never witnessed good parenting. I've never witnessed a good marriage. I have no idea how I'd pass that on. And that's pretty heartbreaking, but I do know. But so wise. But so wise. so wise. Yeah, and also, it's also not heartbreaking because she doesn't regret that decision. She's not feeling pain about it, but definitely like how or if like I will choose to have children in this world, which like for me, like if it's going to happen, it will be through foster adoption. But like, it is also because I have such complicated feelings. <laughs> I also haven't made that decision. You know what I mean? Or it's just like, it's very it's complicated. really fascinating and complicated for adoptees or donor conceived people who are like, so aware of the fact that parenting is a choice mm-hmm. versus people who don't have any, they're just biologically related to their parents and they've never thought I mean I think about this when I was really little and I was telling my friends like at sleepovers like maybe your mom isn't going to be your mom anymore like <laughs> yeah. and they're just like what you know, it's inconceivable are you it's like about? it's science fiction that doesn't even make sense like it's bad sci-fi yes. to people yeah exactly so instead like as a five and ten year old I'm so aware that people can choose I think it's like a gift to humanity when people take it seriously to think about why do I want to bring a child into the world and how and am I capable and how yeah yeah and it's interesting too I have uh, donor conceived friends who are going to use donors and like I know there are adoptees wow. who also adopted there's also people who feel completely opposite yeah. and then I try and be loud about my experience which obviously I'm doing it now on a podcast I still find it very difficult though it's definitely emotional and But I just try and think like, just pretend like when you're 30 and you go to meet, let's just say in my case, you go to meet your dad, who do you want that person to be? Like I'm talking to a parent. Do you want that person to be totally anonymous to you up until the moment when your child has to meet them as their genetic parent? Like how much trust you're putting in. It's so easy to fantasize who someone is when it's anonymous. It's a lot harder when you're looking them in the eye. Right. And this is, in my book, I call this The Ghost Kingdom. The Ghost Kingdom! I love, By the way, I ordered your book and it's on the way. I can't wait. Thank you! Yeah, and when I was growing up in my Ghost Kingdom, Magic Johnson was my birth dad because he has this huge smile just like I do. He plays basketball and he's black. And I was like, okay, he must <laughs> yeah. be my birth dad. And then Halle Berry was my birth mother because she's just gorgeous. And oh my God, and she was winning Oscars? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not so dissimilar from people who aren't adopted who might fantasize 
it's not negative to do this. It's just, I think, human nature. But like people who are like, oh, what if I married that guy that I dated? Or what if I went to this college instead of this one? Like natural thoughts, but really, truly, the truth is always better, healthier. It's what we need. When I met my birth mother, who is not Halle Berry, and she instead is someone who really struggles, it was so much better. I was so much happier. My birth mother is so much more beautiful than Halle Berry. I don't know Halle, but yeah. she just is, it's the truth, right? Yeah. And <sighs> I will say, I really love hearing that. It brings me a lot of warmth, but <laughs> I have to say, like, I don't know that that's the same with donor conception because it is so much of a science and financial transaction and definitely people from my era, yes. something that was not thought about in any way. There is no idea right. of parental lineage <laughs> often going into the decision to be a quote unquote donor. And I have this yes. stand up joke that I'll say here, but it's never worked. So it's not going to go well, but I'm going to do it. But it's <laughs> okay. like a lot of people ask me why I don't try harder to find my father. And the truth is that I can't fathom spending that much time and energy all to find a man. <laughs> Like, give me something better to search for. I would put more time and energy into finding a dress with pockets. Um, okay, <laughs> so that's the joke. That's not my true joke. Yes. That's not my true feelings. That's not my truth. That's not how I really feel. It was just this dumb joke I did. Yes. In a lot of documentaries <laughs> and a lot of um, painful stories, like often finding your donor parent can be a really, really painful, painful experience and where yes. Halle Berry would have been better sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, it is absolutely just transactional. Adoption legally is too, but we have successfully marketed it so that it's a beautiful thing. And so that's where, like, Joan Crawford, since she adopted four kids, must be empathetic, yeah. beautiful, kind-hearted soul. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll wrap it up here with the sort of what you're saying, like it was successfully marketed as that and it has all its downfalls. And I think what I hope for with donor conception is that we start to get some marketing because all of the movies about us are like donor mystery. And it's like four male comedians like joking around about like, who's the dad? It's like, yeah. we need some stories about us that are even within the football field of being near the truth so that people can start to understand yes. culturally who we are, because I think it's harder to understand donor conception because we just have talked well, about it less. Yes. I love this. We need people like yourself who are forthright and out about being yeah. DCP that are also in the writing rooms. That makes me feel better because I've always been like, God, I know I'm going to have to write a donor conceive thing, but I just don't want to. But maybe I will. Maybe I will. Or it doesn't need to be you. But like, where are all yeah. the others? And let's get them empowered to speak out. I guarantee they're already here, but a lot are still being forced to hide. But statistically, they are here. Forced to hide, silent. I mean, this is changing with adoption, but so many adoptees come up to me and they're so thankful for my book because they're like... I have kind of the same story, but I could never share it publicly out of fear that they would hurt their adoptive parents' feelings. That is what I hear all the time. And I also have a memoir coming out where I talk about being donor-conceived. And like, so I want to give a shout out to my mom because that was my fear. That was something I never, ever, I never wanted to be out because I love my mom so much. And why would I ever want to hurt my mom? And to have a parent who stands next to you and is like, talk about your truth and I love you and I'm proud of you means so much. So shout out to your yes. parents. And Shout out to my mom. Okay, so we end every podcast with something I call the book dull test. 
So we're going to run the Bechdel test for both books. It is obviously a joke on the Bechdel test. First yes. question, we're going to do it for Joan's book first. Was the author vulnerable in the sharing of their truth? <laughs> it was the truth that she wanted us to see. Yeah, I'm giving her a hard no. Second, so no. Yeah. <laughs> second question, was it entertaining to read? You know, I was entertained by learning about those early Hollywood years. I also had to look up a lot because she name drops yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so I was like, I don't know who that is. Yeah. I don't know who this is. So I was kind of entertained in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would learned. agree. I think I was entertained because it was in conversation with the other book for me. I don't know how I would, how I would have felt if I just read it alone. Okay. I'm going to save the third question for both of them. Now go to Christina Crawford's book, Mommy Dearest. Was the author vulnerable in the sharing of their truth? Yes. 100%. And I think there, she had probably more to give us uh, later on in life, too. Second question, was it entertaining to read? Gosh, that's tough because abuse is, is never entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. It's a brutal read. I mean, I'm actually going to say yes. I thought she was a really great perfunctory writer. It was very, I don't know how to explain it, but it really, really feels like someone just typing the keys on the typewriter and every word is what they mean and they never had to rewrite it. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed the descriptions and her emotions. I'm going to say no. I think we need to get out of the business of exploiting trauma. Mm. However, it's not exploitation if someone chooses to put it out there. So yeah. this is Christina's choice. But there's got to be a different space for all of us when we consume other people's trauma. And, and maybe it's the sense that I don't feel like people respect Christina yeah, and, you know, so yes. many people are like, it's not true. She made this all up. Joan is like, can do no wrong. So for that sense, I think I just want to push back against it being entertaining. And instead, I just would rather define it as like, being a witness to someone which hopefully helps them heal, you know, knowing that someone believes their truth. And so we'll say, Christina, thank you for writing this because I believe you. That was really, that was really beautiful, Angela. That was, that was, I'm serious. That was so beautiful. I love that answer. Okay, this is the final question. It's for both books. Did reading both these books elevate your life in any way? For me, for sure. I'm a deep connoisseur of adoptees and just psychological family stuff. I mean, it'll support my work in the future. I think it's important for me to always be reading Specifically, I'm quite fascinated by motherhood and kind of what that means to people. Yeah. And I think that this only beefed that up. I love that. Yeah. A book called Mommy Dearest, for sure. And um, I'm also going to say yes, for all the reasons you mentioned of just like these complicated stories of family and, and mothers and daughters, but I'm also going to give a pop culture reason, which is that when Christina Crawford published this memoir, it is considered possibly the first tell-all memoir. And a lot oh, of the reason why she really? gets the amount of hate she does is because this was sort of the first time she spoke out against a celebrity, wow. a beloved celebrity, because even gossip columnists were often hand-in-hand hand with the business of celebrity. When they would write salacious pieces, it was always to buoy movies and celebrity. They were always in the pockets of studios. And so... Wow. That was changing, obviously. And then Christina did the first tell-all. It 
quite possibly led to the me even having a podcast at all to women writing books oh being gosh. like, you know what? I'm going to tell everything. <sighs> What a beautiful tribute. Yeah. So thank you, Christina. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Angela, thank you so much for coming on. Will you tell people where they can find you, follow you, read your book, love your work, all of it? That'd be great. I am at Angie Adoptee on Instagram and my website is AngelaTucker.com. And my book is all over the place, but I love when people use Bookshop or tell like a local indie bookstore that they want it in their bookstore. That'd be great. It's called You Should Be Grateful. Yeah. I love it. This was such a wonderful conversation and I'm a big fan. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I loved it. this week's episode. If you have something to say, you want to talk back to this episode, or you have a question, or maybe you think you have a difference of opinion, join the book club. The book club is on Patreon. We have a chat and there are so many cookies in the chat. We talk about the episodes. We talk about book recommendations. We just talk about our lives. We break things down. It's super fun. It's on Patreon. You can join for as little as $1 or $5 a month, and then just download the mobile app and you can chat all day long with us. Also, if you join Patreon, all the episodes are ad-free. So we started running ads. If you don't like that, join our Patreon. We send you a podcast feed with ad-free episodes and everyone comes to your phone. You would also get all of the bonus episodes and there are so many great bonus episodes. You get all of that when you join our Patreon. And if you're a super hardcore cookie, we have a live book club on Zoom once a month. It's on Sundays. It's so fun. Sometimes we dress up, we chat about the episodes. No reading is required. If you want to read along, it's so fun, but also most people just listen to the episode and then we chat and hang out and check in and a lot of really deep friendships have formed. It's the best. A big thank you to our podcast producer, Kate Downey, our executive producer, Jordan Moncada, our sound engineer, Marcus Hom, and our amazing assistant, Jaren Padre. I also want to thank our friends over at Pattern Brands. They are our product partner, and they keep me and my guests just rolling in the cutest tiny spoons and candles and so many other cool things. And Paquetto, I genuinely love our product partners. I love them so much. So go check them out. Everything is linked in the show notes. And if you have questions, go to the Patreon chat lounge, and I'll see you there.